Let's go ahead and pray real quick here, too, also for um, wherever those first responders are heading, okay? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we do thank you that we can be here today, and we thank you for the people that you have provided, uh, the Roman says, are, or your ministers for our good, uh, that are heading to whatever emergency situation is happening there. God, I pray that you would give them a sound mind, give them great skill and precision in what they're about to do, and that they'd be able to handle this situation. Pray for whoever might be hurt, and just pray, Lord, for your blessing on them. Uh, pray that you would work uh, for their good. And Lord, we know this too. We pray that you'd work for their greatest good, that they would see through this, uh, through this Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, please turn your Bibles back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 34. And the phrase that I've heard others repeating the most over the last seven days from last week's sermon is, opposites cannot both be true. I've heard a couple people say that back to me this week. In the last several verses in, in chapter 15 here, Paul has been uh, addressing this issue uh, with a conflict of thinking. The church had lived in a society that believed in what we'd call dualism, uh, where the physical, the material body was considered to be intrinsically evil. It's just evil. It's going to do what it's going to do. And the immaterial, the inner man, the spirit of a person was considered to be intrinsically good. So the outer man bad, inner man good, always and forever. Uh, this way of thinking made it difficult for them to consider the idea of resurrection, to even find it appealing. If the body's bad and I can get rid of it, why would I want it back? And yet, the very hope of their faith, and our faith, what people have called the linchpin of our faith, is the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection. So many of these Christians, uh, these Corinthian Christians, they'd put their faith in Christ, they had truly become Christians, and they still had this competing idea in their minds that, that resurrection wasn't a thing. That it didn't happen. It didn't exist. And, and you can't believe in a resurrected Christ and not believe in resurrection. Opposites cannot both be true. Truth exists. It is knowable. So let's, church, pursue it and be sanctified in the truth. And we finished the passage last week at the end of it. Uh, Paul wrote this in verses 16 through 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep that have died before us in Christ, they've perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if there's no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then verse 20 starts with this statement, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. We do not have hope in this life only. We have hope beyond this life for eternity. Our faith is not futile. Our faith is powerful. If we've placed our faith in Christ alone, we are not still in our sins. We have been forgiven and justified before God. Christ is risen from the dead. And all those who are in him are on the victory side. And this idea of victory, of winning, is where Paul presses further in these next 15 verses. So we could say this from last week. Truth exists and is knowable. Opposites cannot both be true. Truth matters. And Jesus rose from the dead. And now this week, 
The truth is better than fiction. You say, well, duh, right? But wait. <laughs> say the truth is better than fiction. Resurrection is better than dualism if, or any other worldly thinking that isn't true, right? There's one, if there's one truth, then that's the best. Uh, victory is better than defeat. Mind blown, right? Victory is better than defeat. Being in Christ is better than not being in Christ. Being in Christ is better than being in the world. But sometimes we don't think that way, do we? Sometimes that's not where our heart's desires lie, our actions, our thinking. Why? Why do we get to the point where following Jesus, the king of the universe, somehow becomes less appealing than, well, all sorts of things, any old thing? How do we lose interest in the creator and sustainer of the world? How do we get to the point where we clamor for the affection and the approval of some person when Jesus has already suffered the wrath of God? that we deserve for us in our place. The Spirit has already given us birth and guarantees our inheritance as joint heirs with Christ. The Father is declaring us not guilty and, and ready to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We have that by the blood of Jesus. Sometimes I think this, because we know we have that, we kind of already have that in the bag. Now, what do I want now? Instead of resting and rejoicing in all that God has given us, which is far more than we could ask or think. And now, I think too highly of myself far too often. What do you think? I say, yeah, Pastor Andy, you think too highly of yourself? No, I mean, I mean you too, okay? What do you think? I can say, I think too highly of myself far too often. But even I know that I don't deserve a well-done, good, and faithful servant. And yet, it's ours. <laughs> it's ours. When God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, when God is that wonderful, that loving, that gracious, that good, wouldn't it make sense that I would rather be an expert in the things of God than anything else that this world has to offer. And I think that's what Paul sets out to teach here in these verses. Uh, before we look through all these verses, just go ahead and look down at verse 28. The very last phrase, last clause of the sentence there in verse 28, it says this, that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. I think that's the climax of this passage. That is the main point. God is all in all. And everything in history, everything in heaven, everything on earth, all of it's going to cry out that God is all in all as all things come to their end and then into eternity. Because the chief end of man and of everything rests in the fact that God is all in all. And we say, Amen. Absolutely. God is all in all. I totally agree. And yet, Paul concludes the passage with this stark warning, this very sharp rebuke in verse 34. It says, wake up. Paul says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Hey, 
Come on, man. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And he says this to him, I say this to your shame. I say this to your shame. Uh, We know that God is all in all. We know there is nothing greater, nothing higher, no one more loving, no one more worthy of honor, glory, our praise. We know that Christ is worthy of our very lives as living sacrifices for him. Or at least we know that we're supposed to know that. But why? How? Am I convinced of these things? Is Jesus more beautiful to me? More wonderful to me? More intriguing and interesting to me than, and then fill in the blank. Remember, some of us can step into this auditorium and it feels cold. We can step in here, it feels cold. Uh, Some of us walk into the same room, the same space, and it feels hot. I I took my jacket off in the 9 o'clock service before I ever got up here because I knew it wasn't going to happen. It was going to be too hot for me, okay? Some of us feel cold. Some of us feel hot. Remember, if the thermostat says it's 68 degrees, then it's 68 degrees. That's what the temperature is. Whether I feel hot or I feel cold or what? Now think about this. God is truly, infinitely valuable. Is God's worth beyond our grasp? Jesus is Lord of all, truly worthy of all our love and all our adoration. And we need to feel it. Sometimes we don't feel it. It is what it is. And sometimes we feel hot, sometimes we feel cold. But the truth is the truth. And Paul likens this to a drunken stupor. You're drunk. Your senses have been dulled or distorted. You're not seeing things for what they really are. Paul likens this lack of feeling that should be in accord with the truth to a drunken stupor. And he attributes this deficiency of a right feeling that should go along the truth with the truth with having little to no knowledge of God. So the diagnosis is drunkenness. The diagnosis is we're not feeling things as we ought to. Something's wrong with our senses. And the cure, the prescription, is more knowledge of the truth of God. That's it. That's it. And he says that this lack of knowledge was to their shame. So that's the big passage in the nutshell, okay? But here are my goals today. Here's our goals. Number one, we're going to go through this passage, verses 20 to 34, finding truths about God which show him to be all in all. We're going to magnify the Lord as we look through this passage today. And then number two, I want to challenge us, all of us, myself included, to keep pursuing truth about God, to grow in our knowledge of him, that God would truly be and remain our all in all, that our interest in him, our pursuit of him, our affections for him would increasingly be in line with the reality of his worth. Does that make sense? That's what we're setting out to do today. So let's look 
Verse 20, for goal number one. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead of the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's our first two reasons to be amazed by God right there. Number one, first, Jesus rose from the dead. God the Son took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The creator of the universe emptied himself of the glories of heaven, became a servant, and lived in this sin-cursed world. And he lived a perfect, sinless life so that he could pay the debt for our sin that we could not pay. The sinless, holy God, crucified by sinners, loving us while we were yet sinners. Remember, God didn't send Jesus because he looked down the corridors of history and said, man, that Andy, he is amazing. I got to have that. I got to get that guy. Oh, that, that lady, she's going to be awesome. I've got I've to win her. You know, while we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus because we weren't awesome. We needed him because he's awesome. Before his crucifixion, before his death, Jesus promised that he would rise from the dead. And then he did. He proved he is who he said he is. Death could not hold him. His resurrection proved that our debt was paid, that he was a suitable sacrifice. And Christ is alive today. He didn't rise and then die again. He's alive today. He's at the right hand of the Father today. He is interceding for us, for you and for me today. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Number two, second, Jesus, it says, is the first fruits. The first fruits. Think of the harvest. That first, the first fruits, the first batch that you get in. Meaning this, because Jesus rose from the dead, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the resurrection, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. The resurrection didn't stop with Jesus. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Amazing. Paul said, you need this knowledge. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died. Christians would use that word uh, asleep because those who had died in Christ were going to what? They're going to rise again. They're asleep. He says, and I want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's more for us to do. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend, Christ is coming again, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Be encouraged by this. Jesus was the first fruits of a harvest of resurrection that will include all those believers who put their faith and trust in Christ and died before he returns. God's going to do this. This is God's plan. It's going to happen. Verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, uh, by a man 
has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So reason number three, God is all in all. Reason number three, Jesus has saved us from eternal death. It wasn't just a show. It wasn't just a display of power. Christ did something in this. He saved us from eternal death. Adam sinned in the garden, and through Adam's sin entered the world, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In these verses and moving forward, we see this, this comparison, this contrasting. I used the phrase last week and earlier in this message, the victory side, that Christ is on the victory side, that if we're, if we're in him, we are on the victory side. And there's a comparison with this, the victory side and a losing, a winning and a losing. This whole world, including us, all born in Adam. And we've all earned our place in Adam. All have sinned. But not everyone is in Christ. But all who are in Christ, all who have repented, put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, will be made alive. They will be made alive. And just to put a bug in our ear here, thinking about the victory side and the losing side, which side in Adam or in Christ, which side came up with that idea of the body being evil and the inner man being good? Was that an in Christ victory side idea? Or was that the world's philosophy in Adam idea? And it was it was that, right? It was that. Hang on to that thought, okay, for later. Let's look first for more reasons to make much of God. Verse twenty three says this, verse 23, but each in his own order, the order of events in the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he, when Christ, delivers the kingdom to God. Christ wins it and delivers it to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So every sinful rule, every sinful authority, every sinful power, defeated. So reason number four, to be amazed by God, Christ wins. Christ wins. You might say this, speaking of winning and losing, comes to mind, hey, 2020. How about 2020? Uh, Jessica showed me a meme uh, from social media this week that claimed to be a video representation of how 2020 has gone. Okay? And it's a person who climbed up onto a diving board. I'm sure they had High hopes, right? They climb up on the diving board, like at the Olympics, high up in the air, and they're ready to go out there. They're walking out there to make their, I'm sure, graceful, majestic dive. And what do they do at the Olympics when you watch that? The best dives, they do all this stuff in the air, and they hit that water, and you just go, bloop, right? They go right clean through there, perfect dive. Well, this poor person... I'm sure having all that in their mind, visualizing their success. They walk out onto that diving board, they get close to the end, and whoop! Out go their feet. And then they just tumble. And it wasn't a bloop, it was more of a when they hit the water. So if the judges were going to you know, score between 0 and 10, it's probably like a negative 5 on that dive. And evidently that's how 2020 has been. But think about this. We see these things around us. We see sickness, disease, death. 
we see arguments about sickness, disease, death, name-calling, people getting angry and nasty. We see anger, violence, hatred. We see lies, manipulation. We get ourselves all riled up and yell at each other. Uh, some uh, more because we really think this person, we really think that person is going to make everything better, right? This person or that person is going to make everything better. So we've got to yell and be nasty and, and really mock and hate this one. And, and we can do these things. But even those people that we think are going to make everything better, do they? Do they ever make everything better? Why do we do that again every four years if they make everything better, right? Church Christ wins. This isn't new to 2020 either, any of these things. They've been here all along. Christ wins. It's going to be here until he comes again. But Christ wins. Jesus wins. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Verse 25, for he must reign Let's call that reason number five. Christ reigns. He doesn't just win, but then he reigns over what he's won. (laughs) Until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ wins over all enemies, even death itself. And then Christ reigns. Ruling and reigning forever and ever. Jesus didn't just defeat all of his and all of our enemies. He successfully reigns over all. And then jumping right into reason number six. Jesus didn't simply pull off a major upset victory. It's not like a great Disney Junior movie or something like that. This is not a come from behind win. This wasn't how it wasn't supposed to go. The father wasn't sitting in heaven cheering on the son in hopes of a come from behind victory. Look at verse 27. The first part of verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God did it. And this wasn't decided at the last minute. Uh, Do you see the quote marks in your Bible there? Paul is quoting scripture here. This isn't new revelation. This is from Psalm 8. If you want to turn back in your Bible, we're going to look at Psalm 8 verses 1 through 9 and see all kinds of other reasons to to see uh, much of God and to make much of him. But this is going back now to David. Psalm 8, starting at verse 1 starts with, O Lord, our Lord. And that first Lord is all the capitals, so that means the name of God, Yahweh. Our Lord, Adonai, which means our, our master, the one we serve, our ruler. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the uh, heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And here's the verse that Paul quotes, verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm of David. 
Psalm of David, far before Christ came and took on flesh, far before Paul writes 1 Corinthians. So when did God set this victory in motion? We know that Christ wins. We know that God has put all things under him. When did that happen? David even speaks of it in Psalm 8 as if it was in the past tense. Well, let's think back to the garden. When everything got started, what did God say to Eve? That the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. So even then, we know Christ wins. But is that when that started? No, even before that. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Or we could say that God may be all in all, with which he has blessed us in his beloved in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses is all of our victory being had here through Christ, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, meaning his will always was. We just didn't know all the details. Now we see Christ and we know. It says, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We think of Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am is his self-existence. It certainly implies his eternality. So could Jesus also say, before the foundations of the world, I am. After the great white throne judgment, I am. That's Jesus. God, before the foundations of the world, set it in place, sovereignly says, Christ wins. That God may be all in all. Reason six, to be amazed by God. God ordained this victory before the foundation of the world. Continuing in verse 27, uh, but when it says all things are in subjection, so Paul's quoting Psalm 8 again there, it is plain that he has accepted, he's accepted, pulled out from this, who put all things in subjection under him, meaning this, this, this part gets kind of confusing. At the nine o'clock service, I was almost stumbling over reading it because it was hard. Meaning this, because the Father put all things in subjection under Christ, because God did that, God the Father is not subject to God the Son. That's all it means, okay? Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Yeah, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Father said, all this is under you. That's what that means. And then it says that. Why? That. Here's the main point of the passage. That God may be all in all. Christ rose from the dead. That God may be all in all. Jesus is the first fruits and will rise with him. That God may be all in all. Jesus saved us from eternal death. That God may be all in all. Christ will have victory over every enemy. That God may be all in all. Christ will rule and reign forever. That God may be all in all. And God sovereignly ordained all of this before creation. God 
is all in all. And all of these things are true. And the more we think about them, the more we see the glory, the holiness, the bigness, the vastness of God. And the bigger God gets, and the more beautiful he becomes to us, right? Remember that? He's not more beautiful than he was ever before. He's never changed. We just see it as such. And the more we see it as such, the more we are compelled to follow hard after him. That's how this works. And Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He's writing this letter to the church of Corinth. They, they, they kind of seem to be more interested in, in themselves, right? They're more into themselves, it seems. Instead of thinking much of God, they were thinking much of themselves and, and wondering uh, what all they could get away with, wondering what gifts they liked the most and liked to exercise because it was really sweet and fun to do, uh, willing to avoid confronting sin. That's not fun. Uh, taking each other to court. What gives? What gives? With all this powerful motivation to love Christ and to follow him with their whole hearts, why are they doing all these other things? Getting distracted, getting off course. Remember now, in this passage, we're dealing specifically with this false belief in no resurrection. That there's no resurrection from this worldly teaching of dualism. Remember, a losing philosophy that after hearing it their whole life, even though they know Christ rose from the dead, still has real estate in their mind. Does that make sense? It's still there. Competing ideas, competing thinking. And this is the losing side. Paul goes from the high point that God may be all in all now to these final verses. It's kind of like the, got, like the power got sucked out. Now he's saying, what's the deal? God may be all in all. God is all in all. Kind of like saying, what's wrong with you people? As he writes these questions to the Corinth, the church at Corinth. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? What's that? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this verse is very strange. And I, I struggled in even like going too deep into it because it's, it can become such a tangent and get, get us off topic. But some people, including the Mormons, believe that this verse tells people that we can get baptized. We can, like, you've already been baptized for you, and then you go ahead and get baptized again, and it's somehow going to benefit others who've already died. Maybe they didn't get baptized, they didn't do good enough stuff, and so if you get baptized, we'll kind of clean them up. That kind of an idea, okay? But if that were true, if that's really what this verse is saying, well, now opposites can both be true, because that's not what the rest of the Bible teaches, it's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, secondly, we know this. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't make you more Christian-y than you were before. What it makes you is obedient. You've become a follower of Christ, and you're following Jesus by obeying his command to be baptized. It is God's prescribed means to come forward and publicly profess your faith in Christ. So, you know, we think of the idea of people putting their faith in Christ and coming forward and saying, hey, I got saved. The way that God said to do that is to get baptized. And because of that, because of that, uh, the idea of getting baptized was so intrinsically connected to the salvation of a person because that's what you do. That's how you profess your faith. And so, appropriately so. Baptism, the idea is that it's just an automatic response, as it should be. So, so here's what they're saying. 
read commentary writers and people who are theologians studying this passage, and, and after they all say, this is one of the most difficult verses to understand in all of Scripture, you go, oh, great, right? You read that, and you're like, oh, sweet, thanks. But then this is what they, where they land, okay? This is the idea that Christians would look at the lives of the ones who had gone before them, those who have died, uh, the, the in behalf of could just be because of or, uh, you know, you see this and so you respond in this way. You see the lives of those who have gone before, who put their faith and trust in Christ, who have died. And because of their witness, because of what you've seen in them, their testimony, you too heard and received the gospel and were compelled to put your faith and trust in Christ. Does that make sense? You look at the lives of those who are now dead and it encourages you to put your faith and trust in Christ. And because you put your faith in Christ, you got baptized. That's the order of events, okay? And so Paul would be saying here then, if that's the case, Paul is saying, if those people aren't going to rise from the dead, then what was so compelling? They believed in that stuff and they died and they're not going to come back. So they were wrong. So what was so compelling? Does that make sense? Uh, the only other option I see there is that they had some other false idea and some false philosophy that maybe they could get baptized for other people who were already dead and help them out. To which Paul would be saying, well, what are you doing that for? <laughs> He's not saying do it. He's saying don't, okay? So either way, not great. Verse 30. Verse 30. He says this. These, con- these questions continue. Why are we in danger every hour? If there's no resurrection, then why are we putting ourselves through this? Why are we putting ourselves in danger? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die every day. Paul's saying, I put my life on the line every day for this, for what I did, for what I've come to you to preach, and and for your faith in Christ. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Think of persecution, being put on display, being attacked. Why? Why be persecuted? Why be made a spectacle? Why face the horror if the dead are not raised? Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You only live once. That's not a new idea. That's been around for a long time. It just kind of takes different iterations through history. If the resurrection's not real, then, then what are we doing all this for? If there's no resurrection, if we have no hope beyond this life, if there's nothing else to live for, then forget it. Forget all this. But, in fact, Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits, and we will rise with him. Jesus saved us from eternal death. Christ will have victory over every enemy. Christ will rule and reign forever. And God sovereignly ordained all of this before creation, that God may be all in all. God is all in all. May he be all in all in our hearts. And then verse 33, do not be deceived. So all this information, all this truth that Paul is preaching and teaching, that Apollos has, that that Peter had to the church at Corinth, all the teaching and training they received, all that information, and all of the information that's coming from other places, right? From their family, from their friends, from their upbringing, from their society, from their culture, from the religions and, and philosophies of their day and of their area. All this information coming in and getting processed. Paul says, do not be deceived. He says, bad company ruins or corrupts 
good morals. Think this about, about this. Bad company, they're going to bring false information. Does that make sense? When you talk with them, when you hear from them, when you read them, when you watch, it's going to bring false information. Worldly philosophy, false teaching. And false teaching corrupts our thinking. Remember, remember this, we're human beings. We're human beings. We're not like the Teflon that gets on there, doesn't stick, falls right off. We're just not that way. If we hear it over and over and over and over again, that's going to be how we start thinking. It's just going to happen over time. Don't be deceived. False teaching corrupts our thinking, and then wrong thinking produces wrong desires. Satan said, you will not surely die. This fruit's amazing. God's holding you back. You need this. And Eve let that marinate in her mind, and it changed her desires. And then wrong desires result in wrong actions. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wrong actions. We do what we do because we want what we want. We want what we want because we think what we think. And we think what we think in this context because we hear what we hear. Verse 34, wake up. Paul says, wake up. Snap to it from your drunken stupor, as is right. Don't go on sinning. There's a, there's a correlation of waking up and thinking rightly and discontinuing in sin. You see that? He says, for some have no knowledge of God. Remember the, the diagnosis, there's sin in the church, the prescription, know and think about the truth about Jesus. He says, I say this to your shame. So here's the question, going back to the beginning, is our thinking, is my thinking, your thinking, my desires, your desires, even your emotions, how you feel about stuff, are they in proper alignment with the truth? With the truth. Is God all in all in your heart, in your mind? We do what we do because we want what we want. We want what we want because we think what we think. We think what we think because we hear what we hear, what we hear, what we hear. We see what we see. We read what we read. And on and on and on. All these intakes around us in our culture. And we can't always control, we can't control all that, can we? Before I went into the ministry, I worked at a, a tool and die shop, and there were guys there that were engineers that do, you know put together and drew all the CAD drawings and stuff for the for the molds that would make the plastic parts. Sorry for that little bit, just set up for a story. And they worked there eight ten hours a day, sitting in those chairs all day long. Like you'd have to get up every once in a while just to stretch and walk around, but they were in their their chairs all day long and talk radio all day long. And you may love talk radio, fine, whatever, but. Think about this. Sitting there all day long, talk radio, talk radio, talk radio, talk radio, talk radio, talk radio. Every day, all day long. How do you not start thinking about those things? How do you not start thinking like that? Right? If you hear it over and over and over again, and it's not like they could just go, no. (laughs) There's a bunch of people there. They kind of all decided what they wanted to hear, and that's what they were going to do. And they weren't going to protest about that. I mean, you could do that, I suppose, but they didn't and they heard that all day, every day, it's going to shape your thinking after a while, isn't it? Sometimes going to work, going to the school, uh, talking to our neighbors, 
watching television, watching sports and sports broadcasters and what they think about everything. All of this stuff is getting pumped. There's a battle going on for our minds, a war over our minds and our affections, the things we love, to bring about ends that people desire. So we've got to ask us now, okay? Take a big step back from that for a second. We'll come back to that idea. But just in life, in general, what kind of things fire you up? Not like anger fire you up, but just like, oh, yeah, fire you up. What captures your imaginations? When you see something, when you hear something, you're like, oh, I like that. And you just start thinking about it. What are you passionate about? What do you love doing? You love, just love to do it. You love to spend your time doing those things. You got that in your mind? I'm not telling you you have to be uber spiritual and just say, oh, Jesus, Jesus. What hobbies, what kinds of things do you love doing? And then I'm going to say this to us all, okay? I bet you know a lot about that. I bet you know a lot about that thing. And it's fun to share, isn't it? It's fun to share it. It's fun to listen to other people who love doing that stuff and, and how they work with it and how they think about it. It's just fun to learn people and learn the things they're interested in. It's about how we build relationships with each other often. It's good. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And I bet you, like me, on those areas, those kinds of things, you can watch movies. You can watch documentaries, like super long two, three-hour documentaries that everybody else thinks are boring. You're like, yeah, I love this. You watch it, and the rest of the family just kind of like evaporates into the whatever in the other parts of the house. But you're loving it, right? You read long books. You, you get into those articles. You spend an hour or two thinking about it, watching it, working on it tinkering with things, and you don't even realize how fast the time went. Right? And the more you know about it, the more interested and captivating it becomes. That's how we work. That's how our minds work. And church, we are sinners. Loving Jesus does not come naturally to us. But by the grace of God, we are who we are. And the more we know about him, the more we know about him, the more interesting and captivating he becomes. And there, there are all these competing voices in the world fighting for our time, fighting for our resources, fighting for our minds. And I don't know about you, but I can only be an expert in so many things at once. I only have so much mind space and I only have so much time I can't be an expert in too many things. And there's nothing, no one more worthy of my time, worthy of our energy, worthy of our efforts, worthy of our study, our reading, our viewing, our activities. No one more worthy than Jesus Christ. No one more worthy than Jesus Christ. Do my feelings and do my thinking align with that truth? And do my actions align with that truth? I know in my heart, in my mind, I need to keep growing. There's room to grow. And I feel that pull from Romans 7. Maybe you feel it too. Oh, wretched man that I am. I know this is right, but man, I don't do it. I long for this, I desire that, but I long for these things too. And there's a fight, there's a battle. My desires are all conflicted, I get distracted. There's a fight in me. But it's worth the fight. It's worth the fight. And the word of God in verse 34 calls our attention to our knowledge 
of God. Remember, that's the remedy. The knowledge of God, pursuing our knowledge of him. And so I want to point to your attention this morning before we finish some resources just to help us to keep learning, to keep pointing our eyes, our hearts to Jesus, to keep refining our tastes, to grow in aligning our affections, our affections and our thinking with the truth and the worthiness of God. I've got a couple of things here. You should have come at nine. I had more books at nine, but people took some of them. So it's your loss, I guess. <laughs> and, and I want you to understand this as I show you these things. I'm going to show you some suggestions on the, on the screen here too, okay? The more we read stuff, the more we think about it, the more we learn about it, the more captivating and interesting it becomes. If we're interested in it, right? I mean, if somebody like hates history, they're not going to just become interested in history. But Jesus is worthy. And, and sometimes we have to fight our feelings, right? Sometimes we don't feel like doing things that we know are good and right and true. And we have to fight that. But over time, when we come to see Christ for who he is and understand more and more of his great love, his grace, his mercy, his attributes, and we, wow, God, the love of Christ. Less and less we have to fight our emotions to look to Christ, and he becomes our great affection. And then we don't have to fight that. We want to do it. That's a transition we want to have happen in our hearts. Amen? So I just want to share with you a couple things. Uh, this one, some, the first couple things here are just devotionals. And I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you. I acknowledge that. You're not going to read all these things this week. I'm not going to read all these things this week. But I just want to give you options. And I'll put a blog post up and, and put links to things on there and, and let you see that later. But, but just to go over these things, Milton Vincent wrote this book called The Gospel Primer for Christians, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. And every day, 31 days, is just another look at the gospel, another angle, seeing the beauty of the love of Christ, the gospel, for these devotionals each day. Uh, the second one, uh, Paul David Tripp, and I hope you also see these authors. I'm putting authors up here that if you read something they've written, it's probably going to be good. Okay? Probably. Somebody. <laughs> so Paul David Tripp. New Morning Mercies, a daily gospel devotional. Same thing. There's a scripture. There's a scripture at the top of the page. There's a, uh, just one page there to help us to see uh, and learn from that scripture that day. This is a great resource as well. And then Valley of Vision. Uh, this is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotion. Prayers that uh, Puritans prayed, wrote down. Uh, great, helpful resources for us to read through, to pray through. And then uh, Morning and Evening, written by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, revised and updated this copy that I just found the image for for the slideshow. Alistair Begg is also a great resource. Uh, a pastor from the Cleveland, Ohio area. If you hear, if you like listening to sermons, instead of reading the books, that'd be a great person to be uh, learning from and listening throughout the week. Uh, this book, John Piper's Desiring God. Interesting that says meditations of a Christian hedonist. And you're like, whoa, hedonist? And he took a lot of, took a lot of fire for that. But here's what he means by it. A hedonist is a person who just follows their passions, right? Whatever you feel, do. But we just talked about this. The more we know about Christ, what will those sinful affections be replaced by? A passion for Christ. And that's a godly passion. Pursue it. That's his point, okay? 
So good book. And if you read other stuff by John Piper, many of the other books by John Piper are desiring God as it relates to all these other things, okay? So great start to reading any, anything that John Piper writes is Desiring God. And the website that he has for his ministry, DesiringGod.com. Uh, this book, and I still have a copy of this one, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. What I'm going to do is what I have left when we're done, I'm going to just put them down here on the steps. I'll put them out in coronavirus fashion, spread out. And if you want one to, to snag, and I only ask you this, okay? These are the church's books. If you read it and it just like accidentally put, becomes a part of your bookshelf, I'm not going to chase you down. Um, but if you think about it, either bring it back so we can give it to somebody else or you pass it to somebody else. Read it with somebody. Talk with them about it, okay? Um, R.C. Sproul's argument is basically this. We think too little of God. And because we think too little of God, we miss the point. And he doesn't become amazing to us, and therefore we don't follow him with our whole heart. And so in this book, he, he works at that to um, help us to see the amazingness, the holiness of God. Uh, Knowing God. That one's gone. So we grab that one uh, by J.I. Packer. And then there's another one I put up here by him as well. Uh, evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. We talked about that a little bit, even today. But that was a super helpful book to me. This And this is a smaller one. Uh, but the idea of, okay, if God is sovereign, this is this would be like hyper-Calvinism. God is sovereign, therefore there's no reason to share the gospel. That's wrong. Okay? We should think of it more like this. Uh, God's going to save people, therefore we're guaranteed success. And God didn't ask us to save people. He commanded us to share the gospel. God saves people. Whew, okay, now I can go do this. That's how, kind of how you feel free to go and share. Uh, so a very helpful resource in thinking through that. Uh, and then this one, I still have a copy of this one you could snag. Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, why the Bible is knowable. Truth is knowable. And necessary and enough. Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. I know the Bible's good for this, this, and this, but it doesn't really help. The Bible is sufficient, okay? Uh, And what that means for you and for me. So a great book there that can be a help. And then this one is gone too. Somebody snagged this one. I couldn't remember what the other book was that I shared that was gone, so now I know. Um, The Blessing of Humility. Sometimes I don't think highly enough of God because I'm too busy thinking too highly of me. (laughs) Very helpful resource by Jerry Bridges. Uh, Jerry Bridges has written a number of good, helpful resources. Uh, and then learning about the church. There are a lot of things that a lot of people think about the church, and the Bible does speak to the church and who the church is. I found this to be a very helpful resource uh, by Mark Dever, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Well, let's plug the Bible, huh? It, the reason why I like all those other books is because... They articulate the Word of God. There's a lot of books, folks understand this, a lot of books in Christian publications that are about things written by Christians, but they're not necessarily based on Scripture. So they might learn something from an unbiblical perspective, and this often happens in the area of psychology. They learn it from a secular perspective, from a secular historical perspective, And if something in this methodology might result in what God would want in the end, then, okay, this is Christian. But it doesn't come rooted in and from biblical truth. Where's our starting point? Is it scriptural? 
And so these books that I'm encouraging you to look at are that way. This is where it's at, right? A book is only good if it starts from and agrees with and finishes with God's word. And we want to be in God's word. That's the main thing. And I think I have next here, yep, um, our devotional schedule. So I already told you this, October 1st is Proverbs 1. Uh, on our church website, firstbaptist.co, every day there is a devotional blog there for you. Okay, uh, something I do each day to minister to you, to help you in your study of God's word. And on, on the blog, even if you don't have your Bible handy, there's a link. You can click on it and read the scripture for that day. Uh, usually I'll put three bullet-pointed helpful thoughts. Some people I've heard that have been using it will read those first, and then they'll go to the Bible. So I guess if that's helpful, that's great. But Bible, right, is the, is the source. Uh, but then I'll write three questions, too, after that to think through um, application for that. And, and I like to shove, I get bonus questions in there. So really I say there's three questions, like nine or ten probably, but they're all in there categorized. So, but that's there for you every day. Um, and twice a day on September 30th, okay? Uh, but I want to encourage you in that. And you might say, boy, I just hate reading. I can't sit down and read. Like if I sit down for five minutes, I'm asleep. Um, I, I just never remember things if I read it. I have to hear it. Well, And I just grabbed these as some examples. Every one of these books, and many, many more, are available through audio. You can mow your lawn, you can drive to work, you can do about anything you're doing and be listening to these things as well, including, of course, the scripture. And and the scripture you can find for free um, on the computer, on the internet as well, okay? Um, Before I get to this, I just want to say this too. I, I think about this. Paul said to the church at Corinth, this is to your shame. And I think, wow, they didn't even have their own copies of Scripture. The printing press had not been invented even, right? They had a couple of hand copies. They were spreading them around as fast as they could. They heard Paul. They heard Apollos preaching. They heard Peter preaching at times. They had each other to talk with and to learn from. But boy, what do we have today? And we have a lot of things competing, right? There's all kinds of literature out there, and some of it's good, and some of it not so good. And we have the Word of God at our disposal. Uh, how many of us have multiple copies of the Bible at home? I have a lot here. I can't hardly ever throw, I can't throw a Bible away, right? So it's kind of like getting more and more and more. We've been given so much. We have so much access to learn and to grow. Uh, these things, again, if you don't like reading and you need to hear stuff, uh, Truth for Life, and I already said this, uh, the teaching ministry of Alistair Begg is a great resource. These are not the only good resources, but these are great ones, examples. RefNet is a, uh, an app you can put on your phone. It's free. It's a 24-hour Christian radio station, basically, that's not on the radio. It's an app. And you can hear great preaching, teaching, straight-up scripture reading, uh, some Christian music, just 24 hours a day on an app. Um, Briefing with Al Mohler, uh, he will take current events each day and, or each weekday. There's about a half an hour podcast that he does where he looks at all of these current events from a biblical worldview. That's super helpful. Truth and Love is a podcast by an association called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And, and that's just a great, and so they're going to talk about things like anxiety, depression, uh, marriage, 
Uh, I kind of joked earlier about OCD. They might talk about that. They might talk about um, all kinds of things like that that are, are going on in our culture that are like hot topics and counseling and whatnot. Things that we all can learn from and grow from and talk about it from a biblical worldview, biblical perspective, okay? Now I encourage you and remind you this too. Uh, your pastor is certified by that association. So if you are wanting to talk to somebody, I'm here. I want to talk with you. I want to spend time with you. Um, and I also, it'd be awesome if there were more than one certified biblical counselor here at our church. I'd love to get you to training and talk through that. And you can know and minister the scripture to people as well. Okay? Uh, music. I said this in the first service. There's sometimes I feel like you think about Christian music and there's times when, do I want to just go ahead and listen to a wolf in wolf's clothing or do I want to listen to a, a wolf in sheep's clothing? It's kind of how it feels sometimes because there's so many different things. I think even one of the songs we sang today, um, our music leader wisely altered the lyrics a little bit to make them more biblical. Um, good luck finding that. So some options and subjections. Uh, some suggestions. Keith and Kristen Getty write great music. A group called City of Light. We sing Yet Not I, But Through Christ and Me is one of the songs we've been singing more recently. Is by this group, uh, Sovereign Grace Music. We sing many of their songs as well. There's good music out there to get. And then do I have anything else up there? I think the last slide is the church. Good job. You're here. You're here today. Being with God's people, iron sharpening iron, reading together, studying together, serving together, living life in Christ together. Uh, this is our family. This is who we are. And uh, uh, to keep following and pursuing Christ, uh, to edify one another. These are all things that we can be doing, growing in our knowledge of him. Okay? Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your kindness to us. Thank you for the love that you gave to us through Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would give us um, encouragement, even as we think about these things today, as we see the resources that are available to us to know you, to learn about you, to grow in our love and affection for you. Lord, we pray for your grace in this. Lord, graciously move in us, work in our hearts that we would grow. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you did love us through sending Christ for us on the cross, that he rose from the dead that this is true. And pray, Lord, that we would live all the more fervently, passionately, uh, because we know these things about you, what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.